back to Women Making Moves, where we celebrate the moves that women are making. My name is Amy Pons. I'm a master certified life coach and a soul healer. I'm joined today with Pasha Marlowe. Pasha is a highly rated speaker and expert in the field of neurodiversity. She presents to organizations, ERG groups on inclusion, neurodiversity, and affirming practices, neurobelonging, and neuroqueering. Her webinars and group coaching sessions are interactive, mind-shifting, empathetic, and often hilarious. Clients leave with tangible and empowering action steps, mindset shifts, and a deep sense of being seen and heard. Asha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here, Amy. I have no doubt that they're hilarious. (laughs) I hope so. And depending on my mood, I'm either laughing or crying, you know, one or the other. I hear you. It's the beautiful range of emotions. I used to always be a person that was really, really concerned with how everyone was doing around me. So I was always like the face of the, I was always the entertainment. Mm. And for the last couple of years, I've started to be like, you know what? I don't have to be the entertainment. And that can be a beautiful range of whatever is going on with me that day. And it's fine. Yes. That's one of the best parts of aging. I'm almost 54. And I find that every year I get older, I release more of the neuronormativity and the standards. And I just start asking myself, what do I really want? And, and the answer sometimes surprises me because it's not what I was taught. Like everything I learned isn't true. <laughs> Literally. I'm pulling the sign off my wall right now to show Pasha. It says, think a thought you were not taught. <laughs> oh, I like it. Think a thought you were not taught. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and, and that gets easier with age. I believe. Uh, Thank goodness. Did you happen to see the sweatshirt I wore this week that I posted on my Instagram? Fuck normal. I want magic. Yeah, I like that. I went to a a program with Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love. And first of all, she's completely shaved her head bald. And she said it's the most freeing thing she's ever done. But at the time, she still had fairly long blonde hair uh, when I saw her. And she said, you know what? I think I just want to identify as a swamp witch. I'm just a swamp witch. That's all I need to do. And it was great. And she was wearing this just like very unflattering onesie. And I was wearing as well a very comfortable unflattering onesie. I don't know if that's what they're actually called. Jumpsuit, whatever. And she was like, jumpsuit nation. (laughs) It was so fun. I want to be there next time. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. I love that. And I identify so much with, I just want to be a swamp witch. For me, I'm a, um, I'm a healing witch. I've come to realize that about myself and I'm very in tune with the elements and nature and how things work. And I'm this beautiful multifaceted being. And um, I'm sure we'll get into this more, but I wonder if this lands for you. Women especially are being called right now to usher back in the divine feminine and get back some of the things that the indigenous folks did to navigate day to day. And I think in the modern day right now, we're all trying to figure out what that looks like. And that's, it's sometimes hard. The moment I leave the comfort of my home, it's like, ah, scary, scary, all this out there. But yeah, I would agree that women are being called in. I would also extend it to non-binary and trans people, because I think they're just the bravest people on the planet who have so much to teach us. And so, yeah, I I think, I think it's time to hear a lot of different voices. (laughs) Absolutely. I I want to make sure to always be inclusive and make sure that, and that's the least of it. That's the least of it. It's, but like when I say 
women, it's, I, I'm like women, humans, humans, you know, cause I'm not suggesting that only one type of person is ushering change, but I also know the type of person that's not interested in ushering change right now. And so that's not my audience, you know, like we don't, we don't really spend a lot of time together. So anyway, um, well, well, you're actually talking about neuronormativity right now, which is what I talk about because yeah. some people think about when they hear neurodiversity or neurodivergent, literally their brains go first to autism and then mm-hmm. to ADHD and then to dyslexia, the end. And I'll say that that's typical, but the neurodivergent is anyone who diverges from society's idea of what is the normal or right way to talk, learn, move, love, mm. be, which mm. includes <laughs> all of those, you know, cognitive differences and everything in the DSM and disability. And I would put, because I think right after neuronormativity, you're just about to pack cis normativity, heteronormativity, all the other norms as well. LGBTQ plus IA folks too, as, as neurodivergent. And, and I can go into that more, but, but in general, you know, what we're talking about is challenging and unpacking neuronormativity or what society's idea of the, the quote unquote, normal, right way to be or normal brain or mind. Yes. What, what is DSM? The diagnostic statistic manual that all uh, mental health professionals use to diagnose. And so it's based on disorders. So something like you'll see bipolar disorder in it. Let's just drop the disorder. Why is it, why is it PTSD? Why is it post-traumatic stress disorder? Like we have stress from a trauma. That's valid. Totally valid. That's a human experience. That does not need to be disordered. So the neurodiversity paradigm is really moving away from calling anything a disorder. They're just differences, human experiences, and less stigmatizing, less pathologizing, far more empowering and validating. And there's not any one way. No. That's what gets me a little ragey because for me in my, in Amy's world, I'm all about creating a balance we've never seen in our lifetimes between the divine feminine, divine masculine. And what I believe that is, is that we've been in the masculine for so long, it's become toxic. And some may say patriarchy, things like that. And it's not suggesting that, I have to say this every time, it's not suggesting that we don't need those who identify as men. It's that we as a collective are are helping each other feel seen and heard. And you, I really resonate with what you said in your bio. It's like, everyone just wants to be seen and heard even those that are harming people and the way that they're being seen and heard are by harming people. And we need to help them understand there's a different way. There's a different way to be seen and heard. So getting out of the one way is the entire flow of what I'll be doing the rest of my life. And it's not a broad brush. It's not like every client I work with, it's a very different way that we work together, depending on you know what they are wanting to do, how they show up, I meet them. There's not just one way. Mm-mm. No. And it's, it's not only boring and uninteresting, but when I talk to organizations, it does not lead to collaboration and innovation. And if you want to get into productivity and profit, we could do that too. So I can make the business case for it, but really it's just not interesting or creative at all. And so when I talk to organizations about 
changing their culture or creating psychological safety always at the forefront is intersectionality and making sure that the people with the most intersecting marginalized identities, the people who are most underrepresented, most vulnerable, are also able to share and express themselves and offer feedback. And then like only then is it at all psychologically safe or even towards psychologically safe. And only then is there any chance of cultural transformation on the whole in it. And the younger generations are all over this. And I talk about intergenerational leadership a lot and leaders need to be prepared for the younger generations to come in who are not at all going to do things the way they used to do. They're ready to disrupt the status quo. And I don't think current leaders are prepared to support them. And they probably won't hire and retain them either unless they're performative in their efforts to be inclusive. And then they might they might hire them, but then they won't stay. People won't stay if it's performative and not authentic. Like you're speaking to my soul. There's so many things. For one thing, I am on the leadership team this year for the Workplace Psychological Safety Act. It's a piece of legislation that's been written and it's about to pass in Massachusetts in which Eventually, we have a federal entity similar to EPA or OSHA when there's a psychological safety abuse event that the employer is held accountable. Fantastic. That is what we need. Yes. You know, lot. Psychological safety. Oh my gosh. Like that is a birthright for everyone in this world to feel that, especially in the workplace. And I love what you're saying about, let's say Gen Z. I'm an elder millennial, like the last one that ever was, but <laughs> You also said intergenerational, which like got me buzzing. Intergenerational. I feel that is really where we have nuggets of brilliance. First of all, everyone has a unique brilliance and all generations have nuggets of unique brilliance. And wouldn't it be cool if we could create a safe space where like we could share absolutely like what pisses us off about the other generations and then get through to the fun stuff. What if we joined arms? Everyone's kind of like the, the generations, I want your thoughts on this. Generations just kind of get pissed at each other. There's an assumption about Gen Z doesn't want to work. They're defiant. They give no fucks in a way where like they will not tolerate anything less than honoring their unique brilliance. And it is unacceptable that it ever happened any differently. For me as an elder millennial, it's like, yes, because like I felt that my entire career of 20 years in corporate America. Mm. And I unsubscribe when I turn 40. <laughs> it's like it's getting younger and younger. So yeah. You're lighting me up with all of the your all of your saying. I think generations have a lot to learn from each other. I wish there was more reverse mentoring, they call it, where like the younger generations can help the older generations. And then there'd be this humility where like leaders uh, who are older might say, I don't know, teach me. And then there'd be this mutual respect and rapport. That would be phenomenal. <laughs> I would love that. I always give that advice. Never think that a mentor has to be older or higher rank. Yeah. And that goes beyond tech, by the way, because the younger generations uh, who seem to just like come out more affirming, I love it. You know, if somebody doesn't understand gender affirming practices or neurodiversity affirming practices, like you'd probably be, it would probably be a really good idea to talk to somebody in Gen Z because the language is just innate for them almost now. So yeah. They've oh. evolved. They've come out of the womb swinging and it's like, yes, we need you. And hey, boomers, there's still a place for you. You know, let's all talk. And so it just depends on, again, like having the, I lead in my life with light and love. Mm. 
I'm an avid intersectional feminist. So yeah. those play together pretty interestingly sometimes, um, depending on what's happening or what's put in front of me. But I really try to give the sense that I'm not picking on boomers, but let's just say boomers for a second. Imagine your entire life. So your entire career, 40 years, 30 years, you went to work every day in a physical office. And then suddenly this pandemic happens and you feel uncomfortable even like getting on a Zoom. Like, how do you even do that? It takes a little bit of humility to say, I don't know how to do this. Will you show me? But that's also not how they were raised. So then they'll tighten even further to help themselves feel safe and secure. So that's where I try to understand even the most egregious people, agnostic of generation, if you're doing or saying something that is thought to be harmful, I would want to have a conversation to say, do you feel safe right now? And like start a conversation, probably a coaching around what do you need to feel safe right now? What is that? Yeah. One of the questions I like people to ask each other is what do I not understand that would help me Perfect. Understand you more. <laughs> you know, you know, what do what do I not know about you? Because sometimes we hesitate to offer whether it is an identity or a disability or just a desire, you know, and so we are restricted often, it feels like in our conversations. They feel very, you know, scripted and shallow and structured. And so I, I like offering questions that are more curious and open ended. I, I do something similar. I always open with, how's your heart? Mm. I want to like cut through the gobbledygook <laughs> of just, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. You know, all of that. Yeah. So, um, like Elmo did the other day. Almost like yes. Billy. And then millions of people are like, Elmo, I have to tell you, things are not I'm good. Not okay. I'm not okay. I actually made a post about that. I was like, imagine the Sesame Street social media manager sitting down for the day and was like, oh, cool. This one's going live today. Awesome. Send. And then it was like, an actual real-time social yeah. therapeutic cathartic that was beautiful that was a really beautiful organic humane experience yeah and i i still i'm not quite sure although i suppose elmo's kind of neutral you know elmo's <laughs> just has has uh can represent everybody as a red furry monster i suppose and that's why everyone felt relatively psychologically safe to share with elmo <laughs> you're right you're right Elmo doesn't look like anybody else and that's safe. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think about, oh, had somebody, and I can picture anybody saying that or offering that post. I don't think they would have had as much engagement. Mm. It makes me want to dress up as Elmo. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Let's as Elmo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is what I love about women making moves. We get on, we just start talking, but I do want to talk about what moves are you excited to be making right now in the world of Pasha? or neuro belonging? I've spent 30 years as a therapist and coach. So I've been one-on-one -on -one with, and couples, individuals and couples, quietly helping, serving, leading. Mm -hmm. In the past five years, I got really loud. My, my inner voice became loud. My inner knowing became loud. I unmasked my neurodivergence. I unmasked my sexuality. I unmasked things about my gender identity and my own anger and rage and desires. And I was like, oh, I have a lot to say. And then I expanded to social media and that took off really well. And now I'm really leaning into corporate trainings and webinars and professional speaking and having real 
and vulnerable and difficult conversations with people. And I'm always amazed and heartened. Like when I get in a room with people to see that we're all obviously humans having a very human experience and almost everybody I talk to resonates with neurodiversity. Once I unpack it, once I explain to them that we're not just talking about cognitive differences, we're, like we're, we're, we're talking about all human beings, how we are all different and how we could lead differently and how we can accept ourselves differently. And that's what I'm leaning into from that intergenerational intersectional lens always. Uh, that's what I'm really excited about. I had a similar experience. I had a one, I call it a one last straw moment. You know, I was in corporate America for 20 years and had done the things, titles, money, things like that. And I was so, oh, my mask was so thick. I was a shell of a person and anywhere else. And at work, I was that, like I, I had said earlier, I was the one always smiling. I was always the one, okay. I was always one, the cheerleader in the room, the one that was like, I got shit done. I was just, and that was killing me. And I'm not being dramatic. Like I was headed into a place where mm -hmm. I was like, all right, uh, I'm going to leave the world. Mm -hmm. And so the moment that I had that one last straw moment, I'm looking back. Well, starting there, when I had that one last straw moment, I, I too, I just went into a fit of rage for the, I don't know if that's like a classic unmasking experience. It is. It is. Okay. I wanted to burn it all down. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, we burn it down and then the phoenix rises. That was a common 2020 experience. So I realized when I first started out, I had so much rage and trauma that I needed to heal. I, I needed, I wanted to go in and do a lot of that. So 23 was so much of that work. And I think rage and anger are also great invitations to figure out what do you want to, like, what is that for the next step? Or like to invoke change, like real change and impact. But I also come from a place now, like I said, from love and light to say, what do you need in your life to celebrate your unique brilliance and to move forward? And that's why I try to have space and grace because what you just said really inspired me that it doesn't help if I'm out here just like mad at everybody. It doesn't really, that doesn't help change anything. So when you say you give that space and grace to the places like corporations, which need the most help because they're packed with all the generations, all, all types of people on this earth right now. And for far too long, we've been broad brushing it. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think our rage can fuel our activism, our allyship, our compassion in general. And in the DEI space that I've been in now for several years, there is, there's anger, there's, there's exhaustion, there's burnout and everyone refuels in different ways. You know, one person needs to go inward and journal and read. Somebody else needs to go in nature. Somebody else needs to socialize and connect and gather with people. I started looking at the stand-up comedy. I started writing it and performing it and producing it because it was the farthest thing from how I was feeling. And I needed to access an ounce of pleasure. And I've been kind of single for seven years, so I don't get it in the stereotypical ways. So I really started to um, lean into pleasure beyond 
beyond sex and intimacy and partnership if that wasn't in the cards for me at the moment and i was like well okay and at first it was really scrappy like okay i'm gonna use the good toilet paper that's getting scrappy with my pleasure and then it extended to how can i sometimes laugh and and so (laughs) that was a wide range of a spectrum of pleasure from toilet paper to comedy but that's where it was for me that's exquisite it's interesting you bring that up because with a lot of clients right now, we're doing a lot of work in the second chakra, the sacral, which is our our womb space. What's interesting, and I'm one of them, I used to always think of sacral pleasure of only sex. And now I realize it can be amazing toilet paper. It can be my amazing coffee drink that I make here at home every day. The pleasure, again, we're not really taught that, that like pleasure doesn't, and especially in that region and on our in our womb space, and expectations that people who have menstrual cycles and can bear children, like we're expected, there's expectations. So it's, again, stripping off the layers of like what we thought or what we were taught and saying, how do I want to experience pleasure? And and when I did my pivot, like for a week, all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do was like snug puppies. My puppies, like they're older, but like I call them puppies. That was my pleasure. My piece of heaven of just regaining what it felt like to feel good inside again. I'm realizing that it also coincided as it often does for vulva owners who go through menopause, the anger comes out, uh, the dryness begins and uh, labia changes. And that's actually with the hormonal shifts, like, like legitimately a hormonal shift, obviously the estrogen levels dropping does very much relate to people coming out neurodivergent because sometimes systems that used to work no longer work tolerances are are different sensitivities rise and so that's a common time for people to unpack their neurodivergence at the same time as menopause and then also sexuality and and gender sometimes follows because now all of a sudden our bodies are not solely made to procreate and make babies and birth babies any longer. And so we're like, oh, well then what else am I? I mean, I'm a mom of three and I thought for sure, up until I was 50, I literally thought 90% of my identity was motherhood. And then it scared me because two left, dang them, for you know college and adulthood and, di- and they flew like they're supposed to. And I was like, uh-oh. And then my youngest became in, 2017 i don't know what year it was it was a very long 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 time where my youngest was terribly ill like to the in bed for most of three years out of school for most of three years that coincided with the uh pandemic at the end of it and and so we were looking at some existential life and death conversations and i couldn't imagine surviving his loss i couldn't i just like if he dies i die instant because i'm nothing else other than a mother and I, I had to do a lot of inner work to find my identity outside of motherhood. And, and, it, and it was a hard journey, but it was also this beautiful, at that same time, menopause, neurodivergent, queer unraveling. Thank you for sharing that. Is he okay? He is in school now. Yes, he's okay. He's alive. And he's in school 75% of the time. And so, yeah, we're like five or six years into a okay. very long chronic illness. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Vulva owners, by the way, that's an amazing way to say, I'm always like those who can, or those who do, you know, vulva owners. Perfect. On Women Making Moves, there's a recent guest, Dr. Tayo, who is, she used to 
practice medicine and now she is in this world of helping women or the vulva owners, helping vulva owners to not just get through menopause, like thrive in menopause and like understand that we have so much around. I want to, let's celebrate it. But what it's been so far is by and large, it's like this debilitating negative when when women are trying to thrive in their careers or their lives or do whatever they want to do, you're just like grounded for years. So she's like, no, fuck that. We're going to do something else about that. So if you feel called, I'd love to connect you to or listen to the episode, see if you, if you like it. But the other thing I would say about vulva owners experience, whether it miscarriage, menopause, hysterectomies, that energy should always be addressed. I've started to do some energetic healings or sacred womb ceremonies because a lot of that was intertwined with emotions that you might, that one might feel about the pain or the loss that they've been experienced through life. So we sit with that energy and really honor that energy space so that all the stigmas and like, we can just move through the energy again, feel it. And then also address that you're whole yesterday, today, and tomorrow with or without, you know, this function or this, this part. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think it's important to hold space for that. Sometimes I'll ask my clients, even though they're coming to me for ADHD or autism management or couples work, and I'll just be like, what was your birth experience? Not just birthing, but like their birth, their own birth. And they're like, so what? Like nobody's ever, ever asked me that. And so sometimes these questions are like, what did your childhood room look like? They're like, huh? And it just gets to a deeper level, root level of connection and awareness and sensitivity and just presence. Asha, that's gorgeous. The moment we get here, the moment actually that our, the embryo that we attach in our mother's womb, we immediately do a download of everything she's experienced, grandma's experienced, great grandma's experienced, all of that becomes in us. And so, oh, cool. We have all this in us. And then I love that you bring up the birthing experience because I'm not suggesting everyone but today's birthing experiences can be pretty traumatic because it's like a boom, boom, boom. Again, we're skewed in the masculine where it's checking a box of things to do, like get the baby out. Get, you go home the next day, like what? What? Like for the baby and person giving birth. It's another episode recently, Burdette Crasco, she is a birthing concierge. It, it's all about building that safe space energy for the entire family and the medical team so that the baby comes into this like beautiful, peaceful it's not a trauma. And yeah. for most, for most women and, and children, it's a traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And of course, sometimes I've, I had a couple uh, unexpected C-sections and I remember holding a lot of guilt and shame around it as if there was something I could do when it turns out there wasn't. And, uh, and it's interesting to notice how those two kiddos struggle in different ways. And I was like, how could I have prevented this? And, but to come to a a place where that space is held and where I'm allowed to even say that out loud, that's unusual, you know, but it's healing and revealing. Yeah. If something goes awry, we take it on ourselves. That's tough because it's the system. It's not you. Right. Right. Yeah. That's true for almost everything I struggle with these days. I'm like, all right, now who taught me this? (laughs) idea who came up with this dumb idea and i just like start to i i think about you know that book if you give a mouse a cookie no oh well anyhow tangent uh there's a children's book called if you give a mouse a cookie and then sequels if you give a moose a muffin and on and on anyhow the idea is like 
one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. If you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk with it. If you give them a glass of milk, they're going to need a straw. And da, 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 da. The whole book is like this. And I think about this sometimes when I think about unraveling norms. Like once you unravel patriarchy, then there's white supremacy and colonialism and capitalism and ableism. And you're just like, and nothing makes sense anymore. (laughs) You're absolutely exquisitely right. It's patriarchy, white supremacy and colonialism capitalism it's all of it and stripping all of that away takes so much work but if you if you're open to doing that if you're open to suggesting there's another way considering there's another way and by the way the only voice that matters in the court of view is you it's like getting back to that and sometimes that's really scary so like again I feel so kindred with you um yay and it makes me think of if you give Amy a pizza she's gonna want chocolate if you want (laughs) she's gonna want I'm going to, I'm going to do that. That's a fun exercise. Okay. So at this point, I want to go to a really important post that you made today, this morning, and it's all about accommodations. And uh, it reminds me of a recent, if you're familiar with Female Quotient, an organization toward all things women, but most recently they had a really great session on accommodations for the workplace should be the baseline. So Pasha writes, accommodations are crucial in promoting equity, equality, and inclusivity in the workplace. They are neither privileges or special treatment. Accommodations remove barriers and provide people with disabilities with equal access to perform their jobs. I recommend people share with their employers that reasonable accommodations are changes needed to allow them to do their work and be more productive. And yet, so many disabled people, apparent and non-apparent, are met with resistance from leadership and teams. I'm disheartened to talk to so many clients who ask for accommodations and are met with stigma, microaggressions, and resentment for receiving special treatment. When working with teams, I find many people are unaware of their own disability biases, internalized ableism, and even their own disabilities. It's important for leadership to understand and model inclusion and allyship well. Remember that disability inclusion extends far beyond apparent disabilities and includes non-apparent disabilities such as some neurotypes, mental health challenges, brain injuries, and more. Often, non-apparent disabilities bring even more stigma, especially when the disabled person is to blame for their disabilities, such as with mental health challenges. I'm so glad you read all that because had you said, can you tell everyone what you said? I would have remembered some of that, but not all of it. So thank you for reading. And then you have the meme. Of course, this is exquisitely important. Accommodations are not privileges or special treatment. They're designed to give everyone an equal chance to thrive at work. Yes. What if that were the baseline? The bare baseline. Right? I read a statistic the other day that the average accommodation is either free or like no more than $500 to allow somebody to work. You know, so we're not talking about enormous cost emotionally or financially at all. Sometimes it's using somebody's pronouns. Sometimes it's allowing somebody to have a pillow behind their back, but also closed captions and also all the tech that we should offer. But it's not always that everyone should be able to work from bed with our emotional support animal and a weighted blanket and come in late every day. It's not that. It's not that. I've heard that the most expensive can be like $500. And I think back to my time in corporate on a summer outing, easily the leader of my business team would throw down 100K. So come on. Yeah. They have it. And so it's moving from, you say special treatment, it's moving away from nice to have. It is the bare minimum to ensure a humane and thriving experience for anyone in the workplace. 
Yeah. And the clients I talk to who ask for an accommodation, let's say needing to leave work by five, go figure, and not work nights, right? Not in their job description. And that's also an accommodation because by the end of the day, they have no more spoons, which is a word that we use in the disability community to be like, our capacity and ability is no longer, we've used all of our spoons for the day, you know? And so the coworkers, well, he doesn't have to stay late and we have to stay late. Like that's totally special treatment. We don't want to stay late either. And that's probably true that, that they don't want to. And I think that a lot of people don't even recognize their own neurodivergence, their own disability. They don't even recognize their own capacity because they're so caught up in capitalism and the hustle and the productivity and and they maybe haven't even checked in with themselves as to why this angers them so much and is it because they actually require some accommodations that they're not even aware of and wouldn't even know so many people don't know that they can identify as neurodivergent they can identify as disabled and half of gen z by the way identifies as it was, I saw a statistic, a third of millennials identify as neurodivergent and disabled and half of Gen Z. If this is the trend, not like trendy, but the trend, the trajectory, whatever, this is going to be part of our consciousness and language more than, than people are prepared for. And that is also not to say that all of a sudden everyone's just deciding to be neurodivergent and disabled. It's not to say that some influencers on TikTok said that they could do that. Now all of a sudden they all want to, because that is the argument I hear all the time. I think it's that finally there's conversation. Finally, there's less stigma. Finally, we're starting to break down the stereotypes. We've been neurodivergent. I, I masked for 50 years as a neurotypical straight person. It was exhausting, but I did it really well. And then all of a sudden I was like, no. <laughs> so oh. we can acquire, we have innate neurodivergencies and we have acquired uh, neurodivergencies. So I, anyhow, and nobody goes through life without a disability at one period of time, permanent, temporary, situational, everyone has experiences with disability. So why do we forget so quickly talking to leaders out there with power and privilege? How do you forget so quickly when you tore your rotator cuff or were holding a baby or needed a ramp for your suitcase or whatever that your eyes are fading that you can't hear? Like, how do you forget that you need accommodations sometimes? I know that's to them, but I've heard these leaders say that you just, you just plow through it. You just figure it out. They were forced to just figure it out, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So it, then that's what they perpetuate, you know? So it's like yeah. disrupting that and saying, no, we all deserve this as humans. And one that came up for me, I realize now I would get migraines from the fluorescent lighting in the, in the corporate space. I know that now I guarantee you, especially knowing my boss back then would have been like, well, we just got to figure it out. Suck it up. Okay, so Pasha, what would you say to both people that get what we're talking about here in this beautiful episode about what we've been calling or like thinking about as neurodiversity for so long and what it really is? Where do you start in explaining the evolution, like the what you're helping people understand? Yeah, neurodiversity is the diversity of all minds. So the human mm -hmm. species is neurodiverse. We are all neurodiverse. So when you hear or read somebody say neurodivergent or sorry, neurodiverse individual, that kind of makes no sense because diversity requires more than one identity or experience. And so neurodiversity 
is the human species, but some individuals are, and I would say most, neurodivergent, which means they diverge from neuronormativity or society's idea of what the quote unquote normal or right mind or way to be, think, act, love is. And so I think there's a language confusion about that, even by the way, and I talk about this often, a lot of Fortune 500 companies and other organizations have begun neurodiversity hiring practices. That's awesome. However, <laughs> when you read into it, it's actually typically an autism hiring program, which means one, they don't understand what neurodiversity means. They think neurodivergent is a synonym for autism. And I'm a little concerned that so many people are all of a sudden hiring autistic people. And why? Because a report came out that autistic people are often 360% more productive. So this screams to me, taking advantage of the autistic mind. And I, I am this mind. I am, I am autistic. And I wake up, and this is not necessarily the healthiest thing for me, I recognize. But my pleasure is my work, and my work is my pleasure outside of that toilet paper and sometimes comedy. But I wake up at 7 a.m., and by 7.05, I'm on LinkedIn. And I work and explore and research and talk about this all day, except for when I'm eating or peeing or walking my dog or hugging on my kid, until I go to sleep. I don't recommend this, but I'm just saying that's my autistic mind at work. And I know that about other autistic minds. So if I'm a company looking to have highly productive and loyal people, yeah, I might actually think to do an autistic hiring program too, but they're calling it a neurodiversity hiring program. And then neurodivergent people who are not autistic think they're being included, but this company is not prepared or even wanting, let's say beyond autism, ADHD, dyslexia, are they, are they saying they're also including people with mental health struggles? Are they saying they're also including disabled people? Are they saying they're also including LGBTQIA plus people? And if not, then they're being very performative and highly inaccurate, and they are going to lose people with that red flag in an instant people, even the autistic people are like, no, that's not even accurate. No. And it's, it's really an issue right now. Wow. Let's shout that from the mountaintop. So that's really, that's, that's a huge learning that I think everyone should know and be aware of, of the difference. So thank you for sharing that. Pasha, where do we find you? On LinkedIn at 705 a.m. Not Eastern Standard to 1035 Eastern Standard. Oh my gosh. If I see you like online now, I'll be like, Pasha. (laughs) Go outside. Pasha, there's a sky outside. I'm going to say, go touch some grass. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I value it. I actually, and this is such an ADHD move, but because I know it's important to go outside, I bought a dog. (laughs) And because I know it's important to exercise and do yoga, I teach exercise and yoga. I've done it for 30 years so that I remember to do it because then I'm accountable to people. It's a little brain hack and I value human connection. So I am very mindful about putting in my schedule, friend time and family time. But if I didn't mindfully do all that, literally my default would be to work all the time and work in a job that I created because I'm a solopreneur and I created this work and I think it's important. If I were working at a bank, I would I would be going outside more often. <laughs> I would be so bored and really, really dysfunctional. What was your question? What <laughs> Where do we find you? <laughs> oh, shoot. Dang it. Okay. So, neuro- I, I'll, I'll that. that's perfect. 
<laughs> neurobelonging is the name of my business. And so my website is neurobelonging.org. You can find me on LinkedIn, Pasha Marlowe. Find me on Facebook at Pasha Marlowe. My email is Pasha at PashaMarlow.com. And on Instagram and TikTok, I'm Neuroqueer Coach. And Neuroqueer is beyond the intersection of neurodiversity and queerness. It's all of what we've already talked about, unraveling the norms, queering norms. That's what it's about. Queering norms. That's a good title too. I like that. Pasha, closing remarks as we wind down. There is no one right brain. Everyone listening is perfect. You are not broken. You are not a problem to be fixed. You are different. Thank goodness for that. We are all unique and need to celebrate more our uniqueness and take things like disorder and deficiency and deficit and dysphoria out of our language and celebrate differences because we all matter and our voices matter and our thoughts matter and we want to know you so let us know you thank you pasha thank you amy